garden, which he and his disciples entered. Verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, was also known to this place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Between those two verses, Jesus coming into the garden, and then Judas arriving in the garden with this huge contingent of soldiers, we learn from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus is in the garden in intense prayer. In fact, his prayer becomes so intense that the capillaries in his uh, forehead begin to break and they begin to bleed as he is there struggling and praying and seeking the Father's will. By the time we get to verse 4, when these soldiers approach him, he is fully aware of what's going to happen within the next 24 hours, that he will be arrested, he will be tried, he will be crucified, that God will lay all the sin of the world on his son, that God will be forced to turn his back on his son. He's fully aware of that. And he is yielded to the will of God and the call of God to go through that. So notice what it says in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them. He knows and he is at peace with all that's going to happen to him. And so when he sees these soldiers coming into the garden, and you just imagine hundreds of them flooded into that garden. He has a decision to make. The garden was filled with trees. It had some caves in it. There were places to hide. He could run up the Mount of Olives, and there were tons of places to hide up there. There was a great big Jewish cemetery up there to hide in. But instead of hiding, Jesus walks straight up to them and asks them a question. Who are you looking for? That was a rhetorical question. He knew who they were looking for. But who are you looking for? And what John is doing here is he's drawing out a contrast. A contrast between Adam, who way back in the Garden of Eden, when God came to the Garden, did what? He ran and he hid from God. Here, Jesus is fully presenting himself, first of all, to the Lord, to be used of him, and then secondly, to all these soldiers. Notice it says that he knew all that would happen to him. But Jesus is demonstrating by showing up, hey, you come into this garden, you think you're in control. I'm walking right up to you and I'm presenting myself because I know who's in control. I'm in control of what's happening. Even if it doesn't appear like I'm in control of what's happening. I'm in control of this hour. This is my hour. Then he asked verse 4 that question. Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? That was a question, first of all, for the moment. Who are you looking for? I know you're looking for me. But that was also a question that he was posing to them for them to remember for the rest of their lives. Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? After this night was over, after the next day was over, in the days, weeks, and months, and even years of their lives, they would come back to that question. Whom do you seek? When they would someday discover that the power that they thought they exercised over Jesus didn't get it, 
they would come back to that question, whom do you seek? When they had had their run with sin in their own lives, they would ask that question, whom am I seeking? When they lie on their beds at night, lonely, with questions looming in their minds bigger than who they were, they would ask that question, whom do you seek? Jesus asked that question, I don't think so much to set them up in the garden as to set them up with it for the rest of their lives. Who are you seeking? What are you seeking? And that's a question that he asked us. Whom do you seek? What are you and I really seeking in life? Whom do you seek? And it's the question that all of us have got to ask. Notice how Jesus answers them. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says that to them to identify himself, but he also says that to them in answering their question because he's in charge. He's saying, hey, I'm the guy you're looking for, and I'm not running from you. I'm in charge. I know you want my life, but I want you to know that I am choosing to give you my life. My decision, my choice, my hour. Now, notice how Jesus identifies himself. Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, verse 8, I told you that I am he. I told you that I am he. Twice he says that. Now, the literal Greek of this passage is I am. When they walk up to Jesus, walks up, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I am. Now, what is he driving at there? We may not catch this, but the Jews who were in the audience that night, which would have been all those priests, would have caught immediately what he was trying to say. When they said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he looked at him and he says, I am. That is the same title that God gave to Moses back in Exodus 3.14 when God identified himself to Moses. Moses, I am that I am. And they would have understood that Jesus was claiming that he was God when he said, I am. Who do you seek, Jesus of Nazareth? I'm he. I am Think back to Exodus. Think back to how God identified himself to Moses. I am. You got God standing in front of you here. This term I am, this designation, this identity I am, spoke of Jesus as the absolute one. That he is sovereign, uncreated. He's the master of history. He is holy. His purposes cannot be thwarted. He's speaking eternity and he's speaking divinity to them. And he's also linking himself here with what are known as the I am statements of the Gospel of John. There are a dozen times preceding this passage of Scripture in the book of John that Jesus says to people along the way, I am. He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the one God has sent. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. And what Jesus is doing here is he's resonating with the disciples. They've heard him for three and a half years talk about, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the one that God has sent. I am the resurrection and the life. The Jews standing there would have understood when he says, I am, that he's identifying himself as God. Let's look at one of those I am statements. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Then verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus goes on from there and claims to them that he is that bread of life. Now, what is Jesus driving at? As I've said to you before, the Jews loved, the Hebrews loved to use word pictures to communicate with folks so they could grasp a, a word or a picture of what was the concept they were trying to communicate. The context of this passage of Scripture in John chapter 6 is that Jesus had 5,000 guys in front of him, plus women and children. They'd been with him all day long. He had been teaching, and they've gotten hungry. It's towards the end of the day. So Jesus says, man, we need to feed these folks. And a guy, young boy walks up. He's got some bread. He's got some fish. And Jesus begins to feed the folks. And he feeds all of them. He feeds them so much that they have food left over. So after this is over with, the next day, Jesus shows up again. And the folks look at Jesus, and they basically see him as a roving fast food restaurant at that point. Man, this guy fed us yesterday, and he could just take a little nothing and produce all kinds of stuff. So here he is. So we're just going to come back for meal number two. So they walk up to Jesus, and before they can even open their mouths and say, hey, we're here for another meal, Jesus looks at them. He knows what they're thinking, and he says, listen, you just come to me because you want to get food. I need you to understand something. I'm the bread of life. Metaphor there, word picture. I am the bread of life. And then he begins to go off and to describe what it means for him to be the bread of life. Now, we tend to read this passage in modern America, and we look at it, and we're like, what in the world is he talking about, and what is it, the big deal about bread? I went to, we went to the grocery store the other night and went into the bread section, and there is every kind of bread that you can choose from. Have you ever noticed that? I grew up in a day and age when it was Wonder Bread. You know, Bill's strong bones in 12 ways was the big theme that they used to say. So you had Wonder Bread, and that was just about it. But nowadays, you got every kind of bread you can ask for, and you can just walk over there with all kinds of bread. Let me give you one discovery I made about bread several years ago, I, and I love different types of bread. I've also discovered that as you eat different types of bread, they begin to show up on you, and they begin to stick to you, and they begin to stay with you. So uh, carbs aren't all that great a thing. But anyway... In our culture, in our society, we don't get too excited about bread. In the culture of Jesus' day, they saw and understood bread totally different than we do. Bread was considered the stable of a meal. If you didn't have anything else, literally, if you didn't have anything else, you had bread. Particularly barley bread because it was considered the bread of the poor, the most basic bread that was there. So, for example, when you would go to eat 
If you sat down at a table, you were guaranteed that bread was going to be on that table. And if you didn't have any money to speak of, the one element that you would have on that table would be bread. If you didn't have anything else, you would have bread. Remember that story about the little boy bringing the two loaves and the fish with him? The reason the kids got two loaves and two fish, and in fact he had barley bread, again the bread of the poor, is because if you didn't have anything else, you had your bread and you had fish, and fish were easy to get in the Galilee region because of the Sea of Galilee was loaded with fish. So that's about as basic as you can get is that bread and that fish. So when Jesus says he's the bread of life, this is what they would have understood Jesus was saying to them. Number one, I am essential. Just like bread is essential to your diet and you got to have it, and if you don't have anything else on the table, you got to have bread. Jesus is saying, I'm essential. If you don't have me, Jesus is saying... You're in tough shape. You're in tough shape for this life. You're in tough shape for eternity. I am essential. you got to have me. Second thing, bread nourished people. It was the thing they looked to to keep their bodies functioning, to keep them alive. Jesus, by saying, I'm the bread of life, is trying to communicate to them, not only am I essential, but I will nourish your life. I'll keep you in the game. A relationship with me means that you've got life flowing into you, my life flowing into you. I will take what is dead and make it alive again. I will nourish your life, your relationship with God. I will keep you close to the Lord. I'm going to provide for you what you cannot find anywhere else. Now, as I said, you knew that bread was going to be at the table when you went there to eat. You were assured that the bread was going to be there at the table when you went there to eat. If nothing else was there. Jesus is also trying to say, all the stuff that promises to be your bread at the table will not be at the table. Fame will not be at the table of your life. Money will not be at the table of your life. Power will not be at the table when you get there. This week I read a a news app about a young lady, I think she's in her 20s now, who when she was a teenager, even as a child, burst onto the entertainment scene almost overnight. She became extremely famous, made lots of money. By the time she was a teenager... She was one of the most famous stars out there today. And there was a court battle this week over who is in charge of taking care of her life. And she's in, if I'm correct, her 20s now. Who manages her money for her? Who looks out for her welfare? Because she's not capable of doing it herself. The power, the wealth, the fame has literally eaten away at her life. How many folks do we see, and our culture is is getting to folks younger and younger now who become teen stars, and by the time they're in their 30s, they've burned out. And they get, early in life, everything that our culture tells us is important. They have wealth. They have fame. They have adoring audiences. And they're empty. Same week, 
on my news app, there comes up a story about a famous football player in the NFL who came out of college, one of the top draft players out there, took a quarterback position. He was an outstanding quarterback in college, moved into the same capacity in the NFL. And now he's in so much trouble legally, he's probably going to end up in jail instead of out on the field this fall. But the power and the wealth and the fame was on the, supposedly going to be on the table for him. And it wasn't. And folks, there's so many things out there that our culture tells us it's going to be on the table for us, that's going to make it for us. And we give ourselves and worry about and strive and get all stressed out when it's not on the table. And we try to get it on the table. And what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, listen to me, at the end of the day, that stuff's never on the table. Money will never be on the table. It'll never satisfy your soul. How much wealth does it take to make us happy? Just a little bit more. How much fame does it take to fulfill us? Just a little bit more. Story has told him Napoleon that when the word was brought to him that there were no more places, no more nations to conquer, that he began to cry because he didn't have anything left to conquer because that's what he was trying to get on the table. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I am the only thing that matters. I am the essential. When you find me, you have found what will feed your soul, what will satisfy you. I am the bread of life. Augustine said of the Lord, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Let me quote from him again. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find themselves in you. Jesus asked the question, what is it profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now, I want you to see a fascinating piece of this story in verse 6 of John chapter 18. Jesus says to them, I am who. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And they say to him, okay. Jesus says, I am. Notice what happens in verse 6. It says that they all fell down. They all fell down and fell back. Now, if you've been in the garden that evening, you'd watch this. This would have been the scene. Jesus is out there, and he's got the 12 disciples. He's just gone through this intense time of prayer. If you'd have walked up and you looked at Jesus, you would have seen blood drying on his forehead from where he'd just been in that intense prayer session. You see him walk up to this crowd of hundreds of guards and soldiers, and they have got spears and armor, and arrows, and they can do him in and the disciples in him within seconds. I imagine if you had seen the disciples around him, they would have been white as sheets. They probably would have been shaking in their sandals. 
wondering what in the world is going to happen to us. They, you know, these guards didn't show up tonight to have a welcome Jesus to Jerusalem party. So, you know, this is not a good scene that's going down here. And it would be nice if Jesus could pull out one of the miracles we've seen him do for the last three and a half years, you know. Instead of healing somebody, if he could make them sick real quick, that would be really nice. Instead of raising from the dead, if he could kill them, that would be real nice. But you need to do something, Jesus, and do it like super fast. So they're standing there just shaking, watching what's happening. <clears throat> Jesus walks up to them and they say, Jesus says, who are you looking for? The disciples are probably wondering, why in the world you got to ask a question like that? You know what the answer is, and we really don't want you to give the answer. <clears throat> Can't you just sort of fake it or whatever? And Jesus says, who are you looking for? <clears throat> they say, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. <clears throat> and like dominoes, all of those guards begin to fall back. Now, if I was a disciple, I would have said, Amen, Jesus, you just came through. You just knocked them all down. You just killed them all. Man, we can dance our way out of the Garden of Gethsemane tonight. They all fall back. Why do all these soldiers who came out to this garden with absolutely no intentions of worshiping Jesus, serving Jesus, or anything, when he says, I'm he, I am, fall like dominoes? Because even though they had not come that night to experience the power of God, that's what they experienced. Even though they had not come to experience the power of God, they encountered the power of God so great in that garden that it literally knocked them off their feet and they realized they were in over their head confronting Jesus. Someone has observed they came to arrest him and he arrested them. Now follow me in this story. You don't have to be seeking him and understanding him not to be overwhelmed and overpowered by him. They weren't seeking him to worship him that night, but they were still overpowered by him. Sometimes we get so discouraged when we are called by the Lord to do His work because we go to seek and share Christ with people and we say, well, they're not going to respond and they're not going to have anything to do with God and we see all how the sinfulness. But listen, folks, it doesn't depend on that. It is resonant upon the power and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, another sad aspect of this story is that they came in there to arrest Him and his power knocked them down, and then they got back up and arrested him and took him to be crucified. And the sad truth of that is that it's possible to come face to face with the power and greatness and love of God and reject it and walk away from it. However, over in the book of Acts, chapter 6 and verse 7, it says that a great number of the priests chose to believe. One of the reasons I think Forty-plus days later, a great number of the priests chose to believe is because the power that knocked them down in the garden that night changed their lives 40, years, 40 days later. I don't know this, and this is pure speculation on my part. But in Acts chapters 1 and 2, on the day of Pentecost, it talks about thousands of and thousands of people who came to know Jesus as their Savior. 
I wonder how many of those thousands were soldiers in the garden that night. I wonder how many leaders in the early church were in the garden that night. And folks, the lesson for us here, Jesus may not change a person's life in his first encounter with them, but he makes an impression you can't get away from. He makes an impression you can't get away from. And how many of those soldiers and those priests walked out of there that night and they said, we got him, we arrested him, but at the back of their mind, something began to eat at them. There's something different about this guy. Why does he come out and present himself to us when he knows what's going to happen? Why didn't he run and hide? If he had the power to knock us down in the garden, why didn't he knock us out in the garden? He had the power to do that, and he chose not to do that. He let us overpower him. He let us crucify him. But when the word began to circulate on Easter Sunday morning and in the days later that this guy that they had arrested had come out of the tomb, after a while when they began to think about it, maybe it just didn't seem that strange after all because if his power could knock us off of our feet in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe that's the same power that could overcome death and roll a stone away and come out victorious. But that's not the end of the story, folks. The Bible says in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is saying the day is going to come when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we can either prepare for that day by choosing now to bow our knees to Him and confess who He is. Or the day is going to come when every knee is going to be forced to bow and acknowledge his kingship. Our choice. Whom do we seek? Do we seek him who is the bread of life? The one who sustains us and will sustain us. Who do we seek? It's the most important question in life. Who Are we seeking? And Jesus is saying to us, I'm not running from you. I'm not hiding from you. I am right here in front of you. And if you give me a chance, my love, my holiness, and my power will literally knock you off your feet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you, Jesus that there's an answer to our question, whom do we seek? Lord, you placed inside of us a hunger, a desire for you. And Father, so many times we don't understand that's what that desire is about, so we try to go out there and fulfill our lives with all kinds of stuff, and it doesn't get it, because only you, Lord, are the bread of life on the table of life. All the other stuff says it's going to show up on the table, but it never does. You're the only one who's going to satisfy us. 
Lord, I want to ask this morning that, that you would take that question, whom do you seek, and the answer that it's you. And Lord, you would bring this back to us, not just today, but in a hundred different places in our lives as we move from this day. When we are lonely, when we are isolated, when we feel successful, when we think we're on top of the world, when we feel like the world's on top of us, when we have questions we wrestle with, bigger, Lord, than who we are, Lord, help us to ask that question above all. Whom do we seek? Is it us? Is it our self-promotion? Is it our power, etc.? Or is it you, Jesus? Help us to seek you, Lord, because you're waiting to answer the question, whom do we seek? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I just want to just ask you to think, to, to wrestle with that, making that decision to say, Jesus, I, I, I'm seeking you, and I, I want to give my life to you, and I want to follow you. And I encourage you to ask him to do that. And if you're here today, maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you've gotten sort of away from Him. So easy for us to get so caught up in ourselves. And you need to come back to Him. Jesus is asking you, what are you seeking? Are you seeking me like you used to seek me? Like you know you need to seek me? 